I could take out of my life everything except my experiences at St. Andrew, and I still have a rich, full life. But the last tee shot I hit was more like it, that one in the playoff. Against Biden and Ray. That's right. The best thing to win the Masters, you, you will be here forever, as long as, as you are still alive, so that's the best thing. I'm very happy. Welcome to episode 99 of the Talking Golf History Podcast. And our show, which is named after Brad Beckin's new book, The Golf Course Architecture of Donald Ross. I'm so excited for you to listen to this show. It was recorded on location from Bel Air Country Club, just after I had hosted Vaughn Halyard and Peter Flory. Vaughn and I interview the president of the Donald Ross Society about his new book, The Evening Before the First Ever Society of Golf Historians Outing at Bel Air. When we recorded this episode, Brad had yet to play the restored version of Bel Air, and at times I got a little giddy about the anticipation of his first round on the restored course. Brad is a wealth of knowledge on Donald Ross, and I am positive that you will learn a lot from this show. Let's dive into our show with Vaughn Halyard and Brad Beckin on the golf course architecture of Donald Ross. Brad and Vaughn, thank you for joining us on Talking Golf History. Glad to be here. Outstanding to be here. Thank you. Yeah, Vaughn, why don't you kick us off? I think you wanted to start off on the Donald you Ross know, Society. As a member of the board of directors of the Donald Ross Society, I'm extremely pleased and gratified to have the company of one Brad Beckin, the president of the Donald Ross Society. Brad, welcome to Bel Air and a gathering of the board of the Society of Golf Historians. Yeah, very nice. Now, fortunately, he hasn't played it yet, so we're, this is like preemptive strike. Well, well I, I, the board meeting, pl- you know? he's pl- at the board meeting. I've played the course, I just haven't played the latest iteration. That's so. correct. Brad, why don't we start with the with the uh, the Donald Ross Society? Tell us first, how did you become involved, and how did you develop a passion for things Ross? And and uh, tell us about your evolution and participation in the Donald Ross Society. Well, I I found out about the Donald Ross Society after actually I'd been playing Donald Ross courses for a while. Um, I had a good friend of mine from Los Angeles Country Club visit my wife and me in North Carolina. And we ended up playing Hope Valley, which was a Ross course, and had a really good time there. And the head pro that had set it up said, well, if you really enjoy that, there are a lot more Ross courses in North Carolina. You know, and, and he started setting me up, and I kept playing then. I was playing all the ones in North Carolina, Virginia, South Carolina. And I happened to go back to Los Angeles, get together with this friend of mine who had visited me. And, and he says, well, you know, there's a Donald Ross Society. And I didn't, <laughs> but I joined it shortly thereafter. That was in 2012, and I've been a member ever since, on the board since 2016, and president since 2018. What's the mission? Kind of a snapshot. Well, the Ross Society was founded in 1989 with the mission to promote the recognition of Donald Ross, the excellence of his golf architecture, and then the preservation and or restoration of his courses. And at the time, I think, most, Connor, I know you and Vaughn are aware, at the time, there had been a lot of damage 
done, not just to Donald Ross courses over time, but co- courses of the other architects of the golden age. And I think part of it was the feeling was that young architects coming out of school, they'd never get hired to design a course on their own, so they'd try to get a job working on a Donald Ross course or a Tillinghast school and make a name for themselves. Well, they weren't nearly as good as Ross or Tillinghast. And as a consequence, there was a lot of really widespread damage being done to his courses and others. And in the 1980s, that all started to flip. There was an architect named Ron Pritchard. He was one of the first to really get involved with that, to take not just building new courses, but restoring old courses. There was a reason why they were so good and putting them back together. And that dovetailed with the foundation or the formation of the Donald Ross Society uh, because at the time, the the people who actually started it were members of a course in West Hartford, a Ross course in West Hartford, Connecticut, called Wampanoag. And they had hired an architect to come in and work on a course in the late 80s. And even though they had all of Ross's green and hole drawings, the guy made a complete mess of the course. And the members got were very upset, and it led to the, well, we got to do something about it, and they formed the Donald Ross Society. Just like that. Just like that. Reactive. That, yeah. That was the start. And since then, one of the things that we do is all the all, everything we do, all the consulting work we do on restoration is for free. I mean, we've consulted on well over 120, 125 courses, and it's all done for free by the Ross Society. Which is amazing. When you get involved to in a uh, in a project, for example, advising, consulting conversing on projects such as uh, Bel Air. What, what, give us an example of, of either interaction or intervention. Well, in the case of Bel Air, uh, one of the first things that happened, this was four or five years ago, I ended up meeting Hal Bodley, who was on the board, and uh, Jim Salattery, the head pro, the superintendent. We all met at the Tufts Archives in Pinehurst, and they had all of Ross's drawings for the for both the West and the East courses. And that was really the genesis of the project. You know, what are we going to do here? You know, how faithful. They had, they had already hired Jason Strake at that point. And, and the, the debate almost from the beginning was how faithful were you going to be to Ross's work? And, and there was, a, I think, fair to say, some difference of opinion among the board here and um, the superintendent, but I think at the end of the day, they ended up really embracing what Ross did. And, oh, I agree. Uh, um, you know, it's as a president of the Ross Society and what we stand for. That's very gratifying. Does it? Does it ever go the other way? Yes, we we do lose. As a society, do you kind of take that personally, or do you like we lost this one? Do you, you know, or you just wait to fight another day for the next restoration of the course and hope it comes back to you five years later? We try not to blow up things yeah. we, we try to there there is there's some aspect of that earlier in our career where some of the meanings got fairly controversial but i know speaking personally we try to get away from that and as you say hope to have another shot at that course but i can think of one that i was involved in where they were i guess there was to some extent a success because they were really going to blow up the course and mm-hmm. turn it into a Nicholas, or maybe not Nicholas, I forget who it was, but, no. and, um, well, it wasn't because of Nicholas's fault, but uh, the, uh, and we were ended up, I think, helping to at least preserve some of the vestiges of Ross in that course, but, 
Yeah, we lose. Every once in a while we lose. Not often we lose, but... Um, Connor, you were quite involved here. Why don't you, you know, we're sort of focused on the Bel Air experience, uh, which is, again, uh, had turned out spectacularly. Yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't involved in the early stages. Um, I kind of came in, I don't know when, I mean, I don't know how old my, how early I got involved. I mean, we, Jason and, uh, and Fry Straka had had already done. It. I did. I wasn't with the team that went to the the Tufts archives. Um, I got involved um, kind of late in the game, just looking at the drawings. And I happened to have you know the well a original map of Don Ross's. Um, they used to be the number one and number two course. Now it's the East and the West. And just started looking at the drawings and comparing what we were doing here at Bel Air. Um, versus what the drawing said. Let me and, let me yeah, jump in. Ahead. Why don't you come yeah. back and give us a a little bit of a background of Bel Air, its history, and you know its origination. Yeah, I don't want. In, let's uh, not. Di- we won't Florida. do too dive deep of a dive because we're going to cover that on the next episode. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I say this without trying to be facetious, but um, and I, I've probably said this online enough. But uh, Bel Air, in my opinion, has the best history regarding a golf course or golf club in the state of Florida. And I mean, I think it's probably the closest competition is probably Seminole, but I would debate our history as first of all, it's the oldest course in Florida, 125 year anniversary this year, uh, found in 1897. It's gone through some amazing iterations from a design standpoint, from a, a six hole course with uh, seashells for greens, which I believe was designed by uh, Gillespie. Uh, who designed the first ever golf course in Florida in, in his home in Sar- Sarasota, I think in like 1887 or something like that. And then, um, you know, it just kind of morphed over the years. It went from six holes to nine holes, then to 18. And then of course, now Ross 36. But over that time, you know, we are blessed in having one thing that I don't think there's another golf course in the United States has, which was three of our first four pros. So our second, third, and fourth pro all won the U.S. Open. Uh, so we had, uh, Lori Octorloni, uh, we had Alex Smith who won two U S opens and Billy Burke. And so while I don't have any photos of them with the U S open trophy at Bel Air, I'd like to think that it visited at least three times. And, um, I've given us a little, you know, nickname Bel Air home of U S open champions. I hope the club embraces that a little bit more. Uh, so far we haven't, but it, but it's it's an interesting little piece of history. Uh, we are also, uh, I believe, the first uh, golf course to host a PGA Tour event in the state of Florida. Uh, so we brought in the West Coast Tour of Florida, and with the Florida West Coast Open, and you know we're blessed with Donald Ross coming in. And I, I we'll dive into a lot of this in the next episode, so it's going to be a little repetitive. But there was a really great article in 1916, which would have been a year after uh, Ross's course had finished. And it was referring to the number one course, which is our West course now, that had a very similar look and similar feel and similar playability as what we have out here today. And it was called, it's an AP magazine, or it was AP news article, and it was said to be one of the top half dozen golf courses in the United States. And so... I, I'm not saying we're top half dozen, but... You know how much I travel. Uh, I play golf all over the United States. And 
I don't want to travel anymore. I mean, I will, of course, but I'm like, I don't want, I have no pull to go play another golf course because I'm enjoying what we have more so than I ever imagined. And, and my, you know, I walked this course 50 times during construction and I knew what we were getting, but to play it the first time and I have goosebumps. Uh, so, um, I mean, I just, I thank our lucky stars that our board and our committee folks and the Don Ross Society and Fry Straka, like committed, like, I mean, fully committed. And yes, we've had some battles and yes, we'll have future battles, I'm sure, on the direction of this golf course. But I'm telling you, we got it right. If we can preserve what we have now, um, I'll be the happiest man from a golfing standpoint. Um you know, for the rest of my years. That's how strongly I feel about it. Well, you mentioned that, you you know, your history is so interesting here, maybe with the one exception of Seminole. The other thing you share with Seminole is the elevation changes here. Yeah. You just don't see that no. in Florida. Like, you have it at Seminole and you have it here, and it's very dramatic. And and the other thing that I would add that I think really distinguishes Bel Air is Ross came here in 1915 and laid out both courses. And his work was evolving over time. And his busiest decade was in the 1920s. He designed more courses in the 1920s than they did the other decades that he worked. And he came back here in 1924, and he made dramatic changes to the design. I mean, yeah. his, his design was evolving. And so you have sort of the combination of what he was doing in the teens. And then he comes back here in the 1920s and makes changes to the course. You know, he was getting better. I mean, yeah, I, I, that's when he did some of his finest greens. I mean, these screens, I can't, you haven't played them. It's just so hard to, like, I just want to talk to you about them and we haven't gotten there yet. So I, you're going to, I mean, you're going to love it. Um, so you, well, let's go before we tail end on the, on the Don Ross society. Can anybody join the Don Ross society? You have to be a Don Ross, you, you have to be a member of Don Ross course or no, you don't have to be a member. You just have to have an interest. that's a hundred dollars a year. And you can go online at www.rawsociety.org and you can join. Um, as I said, we do a lot to promote the preservation and restoration of his courses. We have events for our members, um, give them a chance to see a course, Ross courses in other parts of the country they might not otherwise have a chance to visit. A lot of times they're private. And they're private, and, yeah. they, and we have these events to help exp- expose them to Ross's work in other parts of the country. So if you're into golf course architecture, I mean, it's $100. I mean, I, I hope everybody that let's listen to the show can, you know, afford $100, uh, and, you know, and I think if you can and you're interested in golf course architecture, I think there's a real value, specifically for those folks that are younger, that really want to dive into golf course architecture. You know, the Donald Ross Society was really the first of its kind for a society to like really gravitate around one golf course architect and sing the gospel of his work and help restore it and really keep that history alive. Yeah, a dead architect. But still, I mean, it's, you know, all the societies kind of fell after it. And I think... um, I think they would all give proper homage to how the Donald Ross Society set up, you know, their future too. Because I think everybody's taking a look at how well you've done and tried to grow that with the other architects. So I think it's been beneficial beyond Donald Ross because it's, there's a Walter Travis Society and a Seth Rayner Society. And I just think a Tillinghast Society. And I think all of those kind of 
efforts stem, come back to what you guys have done. And I think that's as remarkable as anything. Well, I think, I think you're right. And it is gratifying. I mean, we, we actually collaborate with some of the other societies we've had. A, we had a joint event with the Stanley Thompson society in Canada, um, last fall. So yeah. Stanley Thompson was a Canadian architect and a contemporary of Ross's. So, so you've played over 370 Donald Ross courses. Yeah. And and how many are out there that we're that we know of? I know that that number's always changing, so we're not holding you to a number, but around. I think I think the current number is right around three that still exists is right around three seventy three seventy five. As we were talking earlier, there are, because of the digitization of so much old media that we're finding amateur historians at various courses are researching that his or her course's history and finding out <laughs> Ross was actually involved there. Um, as I mentioned, one of the most notable courses we added this year was Westchester Country Club because Ross was brought in and, and did, particularly on the West Course, very significant changes in 1925 and 26 to a course that, uh, that Walter Travis had laid out about four or five years before. And it was previously unknown to be, wow. I, I, I was playing there last June, and I talked to a bunch of the members, and they had no idea. No, we have two Walter Travis courses. Crazy. I mean, so, that, I mean that's pretty cool, though, right? Yeah. That it's there. There's still discover. There's still discoveries to be had yeah. in the golf history of Donald Ross. I played a course up near Montreal in June again. They found because of the digitization of media, they found this publications of something called Canadian Golfer, and Ross had been there from, I think, 1917 through 1921 at various times doing wow. work on the course. That's unbelievable. And so all of this all of this history or personal history you have playing Donald Ross and being part of the society, was is that what necessitated the book? So you, you wrote a book that just came out this year through Classics of Golf, am I right? How yes. they order it? And it's called The Golf Course Architecture of Donald Ross. Yep. And is that, like, where did you come up with the idea? Why did, why did this book need to be written for, from your, your standpoint? Well, to some extent, the, the idea of it goes back to when I first started playing those courses because I would, when I first started, I'd tell someone, well, I'm playing Ross courses. And then people I was playing with, most of the cases, we didn't know each other. I was a single, just getting paired up. And people would always say things to me like, Ross always did this. Yeah. Or Ross never did that. And I I didn't know any better. I kind of accepted it as fact. And that, But over time, the more I played, and then I started looking at his drawings and studying his work, you know, most of what I heard was just flat out wrong. Um, in fact, you should almost never use always <laughs> or never. You should almost <laughs> never use I like that. Always or never when you talk about Ross's work. He did not... He did not use template holes, like, say, a Seth Rainer. Mm -hmm. And he was a firm believer. Or even Tillinghast. I mean, we just got into Tillinghast template holes. And he, Ross very much believed that if he was given a piece of property, that he had to walk that property, route that course, and make it fit the property at hand. Uh, As we were talking before, he didn't have the luxury of having a bulldozer where he could move mountains of dirt. He had to make the course work on that particular piece of property. And he didn't use template holes, so as a consequence, he kind of did a little of everything yeah. uh, at one point or another. I mean, there's some characteristics of his work that, you know, was, was applicable from course to course, but he was, he would do just about anything to make the thing work. Did he have 
like a, a style, a design set. Like, can you walk on a Donald Ross course and say, and you know, I'm, I'm like battering my eyes and like holding my like a, a like a you know a seance. Is this is a Donald Ross course? Is there a feel? Is there a design element that? It yeah, feels like a Don Ross. The, the ones where, you know, either because they have the drawings available or old aerials available and they've been restored, you know, they're, yeah, I mean, for example, he was one of the first to really use dog legs a lot. Mm. Not severe dog legs, not right degree angles, but, and if you look at a course like Aronimink and others, you can see the, the play kind of moving around. And the consequence of that is whatever the wind is blowing, you're going to be faced with sometimes the wind's going to be coming off your left side, your right side, your back, and so forth. And the other advantage that it had is he really was trying, and he, he talks about this a lot in his own writings, where he's saying, I always design my holes so that there's at least two ways to play them. Hmm. Uh, or more. Strategic. Strategic. And with the in the case of a dog leg, you know, you might put a hazard inside the elbow of a dog leg. Well, if you're playing the hole, it's pretty clear the best line is to try to take your tee shot right over the, over the hazard. The That's going to be yeah. the shortest route into the green and maybe a par, make par, maybe even a birdie. But if you're not a low handicapper and you don't have the confidence of that shot, he gave you a way to play away from the hazard. And I really think this is one of the reasons why his courses still hold up to major tournaments today in U.S. Opens. You know, he's, he, again, he often talks about, I design these courses, there's strategy there. It's, it doesn't depend on brute strength. You know, it depends on skill. And, and that's, that was just a real characteristic of his designs. How did he address different parts of the country, say a, a Hyannis Port or a Bald Peak versus uh, even a Cedar Rapids? Oakland Hills versus a Seminole and here at Bel Air. Well, that's another thing that's so remarkable about Russ. He designed courses all across Canada. He only had one on the West Coast of the United States, but Florida, New England, Mountain. He had. He was a traveler. Every, every, yeah. Not only was he traveling, he had every imaginable terrain and ground conditions to deal with, and he would make it work. How do, for example, let's, let, we, we've talked about the mounding and, and some of the features here at Bel Air. What was Ross's sort of sense of dealing with what is a sandy piece of ground here? Well, I mean, he, first of all, I think he, he really appreciated sandy pieces of ground like Pinehurst because, you know, back in his day, drainage wasn't as sophisticated as it is today and the merits of having sandy soil. You weren't bringing in, yeah. It was very, de what very desirable. Um, uh, and then as far as the mounting is concerned, uh, again, because he didn't have bulldozers, often to be involved with clearing away tree stumps, boulders, rocks, or whatever be dug up. And he would pile them up. They couldn't afford, they couldn't afford literally to try to haul that debris away from a course that he's designing. So he just piled them up, put dirt over them, plant some kind of grass or wild grass on top of it and make it a hazard. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and he writes, he writes in, um, in his book about using specific cop mounds, which out here feel like dunes, to break up parallel holes, break in you know, lines of play and keep your attention in this area and, and sometimes challenge you. Like a, essentially, I, I try to tell people, think of it like a bunker, but think it's a it. convex bunker. 
Think of it like a bunker. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so, all right, I got to go back to this. And you hit on a little bit about, you know, Ross always did this and he never did that because we all hear it. But I mean, the, the number one, and I, you probably know where I'm going. I mean, like, there's been, uh, I don't want to say poor, like early poor restorations without plans. And you get a green and they're all domed, right? They're all tortoise back. And I mean, like, I, I can't tell you how many times someone will say, well, listen, Ross always, I mean, like you hear it everywhere, had dome greens that just throw the ball off. There's only one flat spot and it's the top. Address that. It's absolutely not true. Not true at all. And I think one of the places that's given a rise to a lot of that is the greens at Pinehurst. 100%. And a lot of it has to do the way they've been top-dressed over the years that it contributed. But if you look at his greens, if you look at the way he was designing his greens, particularly in the 1920s, um, and you look at the bunkers he was doing, there were all kinds of bunkers. They, yeah. weren't, all, uh, yeah. they weren't all this, all the same. I just, I mean, I, I love that factoid because, and I'm, gl- I'm so glad we're talking about it now because I can't, I mean, I hear it all that, like, we're, we're restoring Bel Air's West Course. Oh, are you going back to the Dome Greens? I'm just like, oh, honey, honey, bunny. The one, the, you know, we get questions every once in a while. The one that I've, and I've had this happen multiple occasions, someone will call me up and said, oh my God. The architect's putting a bunker behind a behind green. A green. <laughs> behind a green. That's the other one. And Ross never put a never, bunker behind ever. a green. I yeah. said, well, I can show you about 100 drawings that have a bunker behind the green. But. Except for these 100 <laughs> examples at 100 different golf courses. Ross never puts a bunker in front of a green. Except <laughs> no. in his 30. <laughs> That's, right. Ross hates water on a course. I mean, where does this stuff come I don't, from? I don't uh, you know. know. It, but it, it, but it, it's there, and it's real, and... And you hear it like yeah. all the time. I've yeah. heard the outside of the dome greens is the other one is he, he never puts a bunker behind a green. Well, that seems like a very narrow design philosophy <laughs> yeah. to do it's that. It's just it's simply not true. So you wrote in the book that you catalog 30 data points of over 1500 or, or of over 1500 of Donald Ross's holes. Walk us like what? What are we talking about? What are we looking well, at those data points? It was a lot of it had to do with, you know, dog leg versus straight holes, carry distance, the way it was bunkered. And I was really I was really not trying to reduce his work to some no, sort of statistical No, were you analysis. looking for like tendencies? Tendencies. That's what all do you, I was trying what do you to find do. there? It was like in the, on the dog legs. I mean, about two-thirds of his holes have dog legs. I mean, if you take out the part threes, which by necessity are straight, uh, about two-thirds of his hole have some kind of dog leg. How about length? When he's designing his courses in his prime, you know, talk talk a little bit about the length of those golf courses. I mean, he's not designing seven thousand yard behemoths. No, he was. And he says in his book, he says a golf course of something like sixty three or sixty four hundred yards is very desirable. You know, and he in in his book also. Um, he talks about this is in the 1920s. He's starting to get pressure from clubs that he is designing courses for to lengthen them, and that that even back in the 1920s, that somehow if you could make your course longer, it would be harder and better. And he was saying, you know, no, you don't. That's that's not necessary. And for a guy who was as economy minded as he was, sure. you know, why why would you do that? It's the same way. That's another thing I really appreciate about Ross is when you look at the way he was adding strategy to scores, it wasn't that expensive to do. Sure. 
And that again, yeah, because he's using the land. He's, he's not bringing the land, a dozer, he's putting in a bunker or a mound or whatever to add strategy to the course. And it's not going to cost a fortune to do it. And the other fun little fact, I, I had just confirmed it with you before, but I was asking about uh, the unique nature of Bel Air's East Course and how is that historical from a Donald Ross design from a, as as far as length. Well, it's 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 the shortest course. That I've uh, that I've seen that he for eighteen holes for eighteen holes, I think it had originally five par threes. Yeah, um, and was five thousand seven hundred twenty-seven yards. And he just he was shoehorning a course into a pretty small piece of property, and it had other constraints. I think there was a railroad track through part of it and a road. Yeah, and I think the club just they were looking to renovate essentially the eighteen-hole golf course we had, and I think he saw an opportunity of like you own this other land over here. And there's some really unique holes, which now like our 14th, you know, you could build a second course and it it had, it was really funky. I mean, it's too bad. I I don't think they'll ever let us restore it to the way it was. First of all, you can't because our clubhouse sits on part of that course. Uh, But it ended with two par threes, which I think is, I don't, I don't, is there another? Not that I know. Did he, did he, were there other? In your memory, so you might not, you know, recall of them. Is there another whole, uh, course where he ends on a par three? Well, sure, Eastlake. East. Well, there you go. They yeah, fl- right they there. Flipped the PGA wanted them to flip the greens in 2016, but the 18th was a par three. Now it's now the 18th is a par five. I mean, I've said, you know, I know you're going to interview Hal Bodley for the history of the club, but I've said I'm quoted in the book, and I really believe this. This is Bel Air is the best kept secret. In Florida. Yeah, I'm probably ruining that. Um. Trying. <laughs> Doing my best. So to the book here, if, if there's an aspiring golf course architect and he's buying your book, um, and I've asked this of other um, historians, if you could name like five golf courses that they should play to get an understanding of Donald Ross from a design standpoint and perhaps a routing standpoint, what are the five you might pick out? Well, like anybody else, I definitely have some favorites, and I have a top five and a top ten. But, for example, I think Glens Falls in New York is just out of this world. Yeah, and you don't get as much talk about it either. You know, and it's, it's just spectacular. I mean, uh, the routing at Seminole is just a marvel. You know, you... The way he used that spine on the western edge of the property, you see the water on 12 of the holes. And know. with a square property, you don't get the, you know, you, there would be, I'm sure, a tendency to just go down, bound, down, back, or use the water, like overuse the water, and really only have, what, two, three, three holes, three holes on the water? Yeah. The green, I mean, if you don't count you the tee the box, green, and then you call the 17th, the, and then the you 13th, go to the 18th. The 13th green, and then you've got 17 and 18. Yeah. And for the most of the course, I think a lot of people who haven't played Seminole may not appreciate this. Outside of being on that green or that tee box, 14 tee box, right? Um, or being on top of the ridge on the other side of the course, you do not see the ocean. It is basically, there's a big burn on that side for an oceanside course um, where you just don't see the water. You feel the wind, <laughs> but you don't see Essex the water. Essex County in Manchester oh, by the sea. It's just a spectacular That's, that's my favorite course. Ross. And um, I think that's definitely worth playing. Then another course that I think doesn't get the attention it deserves, it's also in the Boston area, is Charles River. Um, this is on a piece of property 
where right rock ledge is everywhere, and yet he managed to find it <laughs> without a bulldozer again. <laughs> yeah. Well, so how about if, if we went to a tendency? Because this is another one you hear always, right? You hear the word always, and it's he always started his golf course with a handshake hole. Thoughts? Often true, but not always. And, and maybe dive into why that might have been true more often than not. Well, the explanation that I've gotten over time for what what he's what Connor's talking about a handshake hole. What he's talking about is a relatively easy hole to start. And one of the explanations I always said, well, they didn't have driving ranges back then. Yeah. So the idea is we start with something easier and then get hurt. That's not true. I mean, he, I've, I've got, if you look at a lot of his routings, I mean, I've found of the ones that I've got, it's like 60 or 70 practice fields driving. Yeah, we range. had it. We're, our, we're sitting on our original one uh, right now in the clubhouse. At, at all these courses. He even had, I found four practice holes. Wow. Where he actually would design a practice hole. And so I don't think the driving range, the lack of a driving range really holds up. You know, well, I guess it kind of begs the question. I don't, I don't know if, if, there's, if we know an answer here, but was he one of the first golf course architects in the United States to build practice ranges as part of the golf course? You I don't think it see was. it with I mean, a lot of them. Maniac Hill at Pinehurst, I think it's the first one I've found. There's, the second oldest is Detroit Golf Club, where mm. they had a 80, 90-yard yeah. practice. Well, in our 19, well, 14, design 15 golf course, we had it. We're sitting on it right now. And I, I thought that actually took me aback because I did not think in 1915 that we'd have practice fields, and yet here we are pretty amazing so uh, you know another thing that he's really known for is his beautiful bunkering um what did he have any tendency when it come to when it came to bunkers i think there's a a conception that he did well there is one tendency that's that's pretty universal if you look at all the every drawing that i've been able to find and all the bunkers 95 to 96% of them call for a depth of four or four and a half feet. That's interesting. Okay. That's, there had a few where it was five feet, five and a half feet, and a few that were three, three and a half feet. But really, I mean, four, four and a half feet. That, I mean, you don't, you don't say always or never, but, you know, 95 or 96%, that's a pretty, that's interesting. A pretty yeah, high percentage. That. And that's one thing while I go to these courses and, you know, uh, this bunker is about four inches deep. You know, I don't think Ross designed it this way. Right. What, now, what about holes without bunkers? How many? Are there a lot that, of them? Are there a few of them? And, I, not know. a lot, but he did that. Yeah. I mean, there's there's holes. I mean, I can think of um, courses that I played, like there's a par five at Roaring Gap. I mean, the, the terrain is so severe. Is that, that the you, key point? Like, if like, can you deduct anything from his design to where he felt like maybe he didn't need a bunker? Is it because of the terrain that yeah, he said? it's hard enough the way yeah, it was. Yeah, I mean, interesting. I mean, there's even one of my favorite Ross courses, called, it's a, a, easily my favorite nine-hole Ross course, is called Whitensville in Massachusetts. And their ninth hole has really severe terrain. Mm-hmm. And Ross, and, and one part of the course, it's sloped pretty steep from left to right and then there's water all along the right side so he actually put in a grass hollow oh cool along that so to try to catch balls that might otherwise bound into the water 
See, he could when be really nice. Met, well, and, <laughs> and you hadn't even necessarily made a mistake. I mean, yeah. it just you hit it to the fairway, but. That's pretty cool. You, you wrote in the book about, um, it was a term that I wasn't familiar with, a bounce bunker. What is a bounce bunker? This is something he used with reasonable frequency. It was a, a bunker that was 10, 15 to 30 yards short of the green. And at the time, a lot of courses weren't being watered the way they are today. They were tended to be hard, particularly in the summertime. And the way, the way you would play it, you'd hit your ball over the bunker, and it would land and then roll onto the green. It was a way to play the hole. Some people have told me, though, he did it to make it a, as a roost, to, to fool the player into thinking the bunker was right behind. I mean, the green oh, was sure. right behind the bunker. And I'm saying, that didn't make much sense to me because once you've played the course once, once, it, once yeah. you know. It's, Although, you know, if you think about it, it does work in the regard if you're the member and you're bringing people out for a match. You know, we've got, we have those bunkers out here that are 30, 40 yards short of the green, but the way they're stacked, it looks like it's a green side. But there's a great one on number three, and I think I put it in there today. I know I'm supposed to miss it, but just hit a really poor shot. Um, <laughs> to be fair, I duck hooked the, the you know, ball before it. Yeah, so I think I had like 200 yards into a hole I should have had 100. Um, but, I, I mean, I, I find that to be, you know, I'm a good host, so I tell people <laughs> that, that that's not really in play unless you hit a bad shot. But You told Peter about 12, and he's still. Yeah, well, you know, Peter played well enough. He doesn't need any help. Flory, he's fine. He's fine. So if you look through your your history of all these courses, 370 and counting, let's do this. If you can, favorite par three, favorite par four, favorite par five. It's okay if they're all Bel Air. Actually, my favorite Ross par four no longer exists. Uh, It was at St. David's Golf Club Mm. near Philadelphia. And the club made a decision to expand their driving range. And that ate it. And that incredible par four was turned into a par three. Oh, and that was harsh. a you know, Ron had worked on that course, and he refused to do the work. I mean, it's just a spectacular. What was it about that hole that made it spectacular? What did you just love it, about it embodied so much of the type of strategy he was trying to add to the hole, where you know you had to worry about bunkers and direction and dog leg, and then you get to the green, and by the 1920s, he was putting so much movement in all his greens because it was. By then, you know, they had already had steel-shafted clubs, yeah. and the game was already changing, and he saw that sooner than most, and so he started putting more and more movement into his greens as a way to defend the hole. That's amazing. So how about favorite par three? Well, one it's, of my, it's not the one that replaced it. <laughs> it's not the one that replaced it. Um one of my favorite Ross par threes, I mean, there's some debate about how involved he was in the course of the 17th hole at White Bear Yacht Club. I just think it's, again, because it embodies so much about what Ross did. He's, it's a reasonably long par three. It's over 200 yards. From the tee to the green is almost all carry over water. And yet over on the left, you can hit over there. Um, and and then play your second shot onto the green if you're worried about 
yeah. carrying it all the way. It's like, I mean, you've probably played Cypress Point. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think 16th hole there is just out of this world. Amazing. I, hit, I don't even try to hit the green. Come I, on. I, well, I tried the first time I played there. I tried <laughs> it, and I dumped a few in the water. But now I just I just hit over to, to the fairway and then um, pitch it onto the green. Love it. Okay, par five then. Don Ross. My favorite par five. I really like the first hole at Glens Falls. And what about it? Again, it just you got to carry over water to start the hole. The fairway's quite elevated. Then you got a pretty sharp dog lay. You got a lot of terrain, a reasonable amount of bunkering, and um, until you get to the green. Let's go through this in in your book because I just think this will be interesting. You 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 rate your top 18 golf holes for Donald Ross. And, and I'll, I'll read them off to you if, so you don't have to like look at it. And so what you did here is you went hole by hole. So if it, was the, it has to be the first hole to be number one, and it has to be the second hole of a golf course to be number two, and you, you didn't repeat any, correct? I didn't repeat any that Mike Fay had used when he did his book, Golf okay. Instead of Meant to Be Played. And so that's the, it was from and this it, I, same idea. The same idea. And it had to re- end up with a reasonable mix of three, fours, and fives. Yeah. Par, and par you come 72. up with uh, 72. So yeah. you have Charles River as number one. Yeah. Spectacular opening hole. What, what, tell me, what, the, what was that like? It's, uh, it's just a great hole. I mean, it, first of all, I love the course, but relatively high tee. Go, you, you hit downhill. You've got a lake near the landing spot mm-hmm. on the right. You've got a rock ledge. And then you start going back up the hill to the green, and you've got a severe green, and <laughs> bunkers you have to worry about. Just a great hole. And, right. not a, and not an easy opening hole. Uh, and we won't do them all. I'll just skip around a little bit. Because if we do, we could probably do 18 on a whole podcast. You have the fourth at Hyannisport Club. Yeah, I, I absolutely I, I Is love that over the waterway. I'm trying to remember yeah. number four. Well, I as we've talked before, one of my favorite things about a favorite type of Ross hole is where it's not just a dog leg necessarily, but where you have a choice. There is a dog leg of how far, how much do you want to cut off, and that's one of the best examples of a hole he ever did, where you can. There's a lot of options on that hole. The tees are not square to the hole at all. You're just tees like this, and then the hole runs, you know. In the wind. Almost perpendicular to the the tee. And how how far do you want to hit it? I mean, how much do you want to try? I think it's the best hole. Some of my favorite Ross holes fall into that category. And here's one that uh, I think everyone could have seen by now, the fifth at uh, Eastlake. What do you like about the fifth? The par five. Yeah, I'm. Uh, it's been a while since I've played there, so I don't. You know, I mean, I played there a couple of times, but I don't. I don't remember. I can't really speak to it too specifically. No, that's all right. It's uh, all right. You, you have one on here that I really love too, and I've played this. Uh, the ninth at Minicata is a really cool hole. It is an, another just an outstanding golf course where you've got terrain, you've got elevation change, you've got bunkers you've got yeah you got to you just you have to pay i mean this is ross he he wants you to think you know this is this is part of the strategy in the whole you got to pay attention to what you're doing well let let me ask you that on the strategy is there anything you can deduct like if you see something if you look out at a hole and you see a bunker in a certain spot is he trying to communicate with you is he telling you you know, like, I want you to aim at this bite. Like, it's going to be helpful for you to be close to this bunker, but not in it. Is that? 
You, you get what I'm asking? Yeah, I think it's more, though, where he's saying, look, you can see it. He doesn't hide his bunkers. Yeah. Okay? You can see it. It's your job to miss it. You know. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think of number three. So three is might be my favorite hole out here at Bel Air. And it, I love it not because it's easy. Uh, as a matter of fact, I sent, I think that I put that on Twitter. I said that the older I get, the more I'm enthralled with holes that challenge me versus ones that allow me to score, right? So you're always, you're fighting the architect, you're fighting the design, and you're trying to figure out what are they asking me to do and do I have the ability to do it? And then even if I can't do it, can I save myself from that? And some of the best holes, um, I think six out here is amazing. I think three, three, you know, Baranka on the front end. You haven't seen this because the horse hole's been restored. It is a transformation that you you won't even know where you're at when you play three. Creek running down the right. We were playing it today with Peter Florian. He hit a good drive, and I was like, "Oh man, that might be in the water." And he's like, "What?" And I'm like, "Yeah, I probably should have told you." The creek goes <laughs> down the right and then cuts across the fairway at about 280 yards, and then sleeks back like an S around the green. I'm like, "It's not only just beautiful, but..." You, he's asking you to hit a shot that's very gettable. Um, he's asking you to hit the right distance or lay up and put it in, a, in the right spot or you could be in a lot of trouble. Well, I think that's interesting and right, and I'd say as a corollary to that, as I have gotten older and I'm old and can't hit the ball as far, I often look at his shorter par fours and think, aha, I have a chance of getting on in two and actually – and it is uncanny how often he gives you a short par four where it's anything but easy. Yeah. Um, There's, I mean, so we're, you'll play tomorrow, you'll play two as a short par four. And number two is going to have the left hand side is where the Baranka starts for number three. So you're like, it's automatically a little bit in your head. You can't go left. And then there's a cop mount on the right. And it's outside of that. I mean, like if you take any of these hazards away, it's probably a fairly benign hole. It's got a great green, of course, but it it has a place in your head. Number 17 is a very drivable hole, uh, I, I suppose for long hitters, but as you move up in the tees, it's maybe 300 yards. Um, and it's you know that's from the blue tees. And it's so expertly done that you, you want to pull driver out. And that's your first thought. You have out of bounds on the right. You've got Three, three bunkers maybe on the right-hand side. And then you're thinking like, all right, well, this is easy enough. I'm just going to – I'll just go a little left. Well, our newly restored creek is on the left, and even deviously, it starts to creep toward the green as you get closer to it. So it is a real I, – I, I call it a perfect match play hole where you need the birdie and you want to pull out your driver. And the other guy is like waiting – or other guy or girl, and they're sitting there like – Oh, do that. I'll just pull out a four iron and take you all day long. <laughs> and it's just, it's, there's, I mean, there's pure genius in his designs yeah, and layouts. I mean, he, we really believe he was the best there ever was. Yeah. Um, let, let me ask you, what are your thoughts? And you haven't even seen ours here, but the cop mound. So, you know, as our membership is adapting to this new restoration, um, I think universally, not universally, but I think the overall, take from our membership is they absolutely love them. But I'm sure we have naysayers who 
do not like the cop mounts. Uh, and then, and for you, for you at home, we're talking about convex, like essentially hills in our case that are, the base is grass and that they're topped off like a sand dune. Uh, if I were to give it with wire grass coming out the top, what are your thoughts on how they're used? Do you like them? Is that a fair restoration to put them back in? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and it's, it's intended to be a hazard. And you can, it's no, not like no it, different than a bunker. It's no different. And it's, it's not as if you can't see it. So I've actually argued with, uh, you know, a, a couple people that it's actually easier in a bunker in many ways. There's no lip, right? I mean, you're, you're standing on elevated turf or, you know, sand in this case, and you don't have to worry about a lip. Generally speaking, you can hit almost any club you can get it on. Whereas if you're in a four foot deep bunker, you're not hitting a three wood, you know, at least if you're immortal, and as some of the pros, who knows? Well, I've been stuck behind some of Ross's mounting. That's that's uh, you're pulling out a highly lofted club. Sure, yeah, but you know, even better yet. I mean, I'll say this, Vaughn. Uh, you'll you'll speak to this a little bit when you played nine. I think for the first time, you hit a drive and you thought you hit it really good, and you were in the fairway, and there was a mound. I think ten feet in front of you, and. It's a beautiful drive. He gets over there and he's like, "Spectacular drive." He he literally said, "Baby buttercut." He goes, "This." He goes, "This is amazing." And I'm like, "What's that?" He goes, "I've got a blind shot into the green." And you yeah. meant it though. Yeah, you meant it that phenomenal. it was a, it was a good thing. It was a it was uh, a mound that sort of came out just in front of the perfect landing spot for a nice buttercut away from the creek. The creek. Uh, so I felt that I made an outstanding shot. And made an outstanding decision and we thought I was in a great position and found that I was blocked because it was a little bit of a bailout. So I was rewarded. I was in the fairway, but I was penalized for being a little chicken squat. <laughs> but, but not penalized in a stroke. He just penalized no, so you with a view of the it. hole. Yeah, I didn't have yeah. a view of the hole. I, I saw this mound in front of me and uh, and I really like the mounds. I think they are three to four feet shorter than Ross had originally specified, but the mounding really gives you a sense of hole, right? You are on this hole. The mounding separates you from another hole where there are other things going on. Uh, because previously, if I recall, they were just groves and groves of, of just garbaging nasty trees that people plant on golf courses yeah, we lost, in Florida. I think over a thousand trees. Yeah. I think, um, you know, I, I think... We we had some cases where people were asking Jason or myself, why are we removing these trees? And I would kindly just say, just wait. You know, we alluded to this before, but... They weren't there when Ross... No, I mean, I mean, let's face it. When this thing's built in 1915, it was probably more of a Lynx course, if anything. I mean, open land, open views. And it played like a Lynx course today. It was spectacular. It, it does. I mean, it has. I always tell people there's trees on our golf course but they're not really in play. You really have to hit a horrendous shot to have a tree in your way. And yet, you know, if we could get past the, the distillation of people thinking that trees make golf courses harder, this course isn't easy because it has fewer trees. <laughs> I think our membership will tell you that. And, and I would say one more thing regarding the cop mounds. The cop mounds have replaced groves of really nasty trees that had roots and just a million places to lose a ball and not be able to get out. At least with the cop mound, you have a chance. 
and you have an opportunity to advance your ball. So what else do you want to say about the book? Well, as I said, it's, uh, it's, it's not a biography. There have been a couple of excellent biographies of Ross Dunn. This is a book that focuses entirely on his architecture, what he was doing, why he was doing it. One of the things we haven't talked about is Ross was the first architect to build multiple T's. Is that right? Nobody else I don't was, think I knew that. Nobody else was doing it. And he talks about, you know, why he was doing it. Well, the whole idea is, you know, he's, he's putting strategy in a hole. Well, depending upon wind conditions and how wet a course is or whatever, a hole is going to play different from day to day. And this is a way to adjust. And it wasn't just, you know, women's tees and men's tees. It was a multitude of tees. Yeah, although he was the f- I, I, I'm absolutely convinced he was the first to have women's tees. Really? He has. I've found a number of instances where he has a clearly designated ladies' tee. Well, I mean, that's pretty cool. Yeah. And, and it's funny because a lot of women were playing golf back then. There were a lot playing then. Uh, it's a term today that probably isn't acceptable. Uh, it's a forward tee now. Forward tee, sure. But, uh, yeah, he had multiple tees, two, three tees. And, and some of his tee boxes, again, were very large. To take it, and also I like the way you know he he doesn't always have them square to the hole. Oh no, he does not. Um, Just a little way to just nick you a little bit sometimes. And while a lot of them are sort of runway style, you know, like, and uh, he also separated them laterally, so that that's cool. Yeah. So. What's your takeaway from Donald? Like when I say, when you hear the name Donald Ross, what, what comes to your mind? I mean, you've, you've followed him, you've studied him, you're the president of, of his society. Like, what, what, is, what does that name mean to you? Well, for me, again, I took up golf pretty late in life. I didn't start playing at all until my late 30s, and then I didn't even play a lot. So I've never been a really good golfer. And one of the... F- things I realized early on is how much fun Ross courses are. You don't have to be a great golfer to have a great time. And, uh, I mean, that's one of his most endearing qualities as far as I'm concerned. You have to be a good golfer to score well on his courses, but you don't have to be a good golfer to enjoy them. You're not going to be overly penalized. No. Yeah. You know, there's trouble there. You can see it, but they always give you – or almost always give you a way to avoid it if you want to. Like the almost always. Almost yeah. always. So. Yeah. <laughs> never say always. <laughs> never. never say never. That's fantastic. Well, I love the book. I think it is one of the great works on Don Ross. I forget Don Ross, just any golf course architect. I think the photos are spectacular. I believe you took most of them. Most of them, yeah. And I think the 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 whole graphs, the original routings and drawings and notes of Donald Ross are in here that are fantastic. Yeah, I'm trying to support what I'm saying about his architecture by including his drawings. But it's also great just to see it in his own words, you know, as you look at it and and get a gut feeling for some of these famous holes that we now know or some members get to play. And some, like when we see in Bel Air, when I was so happy to see that our fourth hole, the island hole, is in here in the book. Well, Bel Air's in there a bunch of times. I just... um, I can't thank you enough for writing. I can't also imagine that's Sarah Bay right there. What <laughs> went into this book? I mean, it's not a short book. No, <laughs> I'm never doing another one. <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean, it is. 
It's outstanding. It's professional, and you can get it at Classics of Golf. Yeah, Classics of Golf in New York. And it's a leather-bound edition that came out, and there's not a lot of them, right? There's 500? Is that oh, what I heard? leather-bound edition. The, the edition that's for sale, there was only 500 of them printed. And there's a few, at least a few left. There's some left, yeah. So I think it's www.classicsofgolf.com. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, Brad. It's been a... Thank you. And I can't wait for you to play this tomorrow I, with us. I can't wait either. Inner Society outing, and we have a live podcast tomorrow. For you listening at home, it's not going to be tomorrow. I'm sorry. Uh, unless you're listening to this you know, a month from now, then you can listen to it tomorrow as well. This will be episode 99. I don't know how that ever happened, season five and episode 100. And by the way, folks at home... I. I was feeling a little loopy. Maybe I had some whiskey. And once I said, I alluded to the fact that maybe I'd only do 100 episodes and people freaked out. I'm doing more than 100 episodes. It's going to keep going on for a long time, hopefully. So don't freak out. It's not our last episode. But I'm so stinking happy that the last, the 100th episode, the last episode, watch me drop that. The last one. No, the 100th episode is going to be in front of a live audience. It's going to be, you know, recorded in front of a live audience in front of 72 people here at Bel Air, and it's going to be the history and restoration of Bel Air Country Club. I did not even plan it until, I don't know, maybe a couple months ago, Vaughn, like three, four months ago, we thought this might time out with the opening of the club. And then, yeah, and our club doesn't do a lot of these outings. I think, I mean, we don't even do a lot of corporate outings. So we've hosted the Donald Ross Society multiple times, and so when I made the ask, I didn't expect a yes. So I, I really special thanks to my club for, you know, seeing the value and coming out here and really, you know, sharing it with the membership, how neat it is to have golf historians and art. We have a couple architects coming. We have historians. And of course, Brad, illustrious company coming to come play the course and listen to the podcast. So it really worked out. And you're number 99. Thank you so much. <laughs> the second to last episode ever. <laughs> ever. Of Talking Go History. Thank you. All right. Thank you so much. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed the podcast as much as I did. Vaughn's mic malfunctioned about halfway through the show, so his audio may sound a little staticky because I had to capture his audio through Brad's mic. I would love to hear your thoughts on this show and what you might have learned from it. If you are on Twitter, let me know at at shistorians. Until next time, which will be our 100th show, yours in golf history, this is Connor T. Lewis. <laughs>